Beloveds, welcome to this special Easter episode of The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world. That's an Easter message if I've ever heard one. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement is of a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together occasionally for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap back with you again today. I'm a UCC pastor and I've just recently moved to the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee, Erie, and Winraranon peoples. I just moved here and we'll tell you more about that in a few weeks. But I'm the Faith Coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally, and this podcast is a project of SURGE Faith and SURGE Action, and is particularly designed for white people. White people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe that white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up, and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition, and including on Easter. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. How do we preach resurrection in Good Friday times? How do we embody resurrection when crucifixion still happens daily, multiple times a day? How do we live a resurrection that does not glorify a white, imperial, supersessionist, death-dealing victory? These are the questions our podcast contributors are reflecting on in this episode. Will Green, myself, and Margaret Ernst each have a resistance word to bring you this Easter. Let's all take a good, deep breath and dig in. friends, this is Will Green, sharing with you as part of our Easter episode of The Word is Resistance. For my contribution, I have a few things to share with you about resurrection and anti-racism. Let me get right into it. Racism kills people in so many ways. White supremacy is fatal, and it leads to death. One of the most well-known definitions of racism comes from Ruth Wilson Gilmore. I've used this definition on this podcast before. It's a rather complicated sentence, but I want to quote it to remind us that racism leads to death. Here it is. 
Racism is, quote, the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death. This definition comes from Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book, Golden Gulag, published by University of California Press in 2007. Let me say it again. Racism is the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death. Okay, that's quite the statement. If you've never heard this definition before, just focus on the last four words. Vulnerability to premature death. Racism means that some people face vulnerability to premature death. In other words, part of what this definition is saying is that racism kills people. Racism ends in death. That's racism, a specific thing that leads to death. So as we're talking about the connection between anti-racism and resurrection, I think we can affirm that anti-racism confronts death. Racism ends in death, but anti-racism does not end with death. Anti-racism tries to heal in the face of racism. Anti-racism tries to offer hope in the face of racism. Anti-racism tries to take on and overturn the workings of racism. I'll even say that racism leads to death. Anti-racism leads to life. Anti-racism tries to save lives. That does not mean anti-racists are saviors. But confronting racism, challenging racism, dismantling racism is all about confronting death, confronting a force that kills people. Anti-racism is a matter of life and death. Now, like anti-racism, which says that the system of death is not the last word, resurrection also does not end with death. When we're talking about resurrection, we're saying that death is not the end. Doesn't mean death isn't real. But resurrection is what God did for Jesus after he died. After Jesus was killed, God resurrected him. After being killed, Jesus was resurrected. So just like anti-racism, resurrection also confronts death. Both anti-racism and resurrection confront death. Resurrection is something God does for people who have died. And anti-racism confronts vulnerability to premature death. What I want you to hear this Easter is that resurrection smells an awful lot like anti-racism. There's a strong connection between resurrection and anti-racism. Okay, now let me turn uh, to the Bible and to try to say something through story and experience. I am a gardener. Uh, just today, I was outside in the garden, and I cut back some lavender that I had left alone all winter. Hadn't cut it back in the autumn. I just let it be as the snow fell and the cold came. Uh, this plant was gray and looked pretty dead. It looked very dead, actually. But today when I cut it with my clippers, it smelled so fragrant. I wish you could smell this plant. I actually have it right in front of me as I record this, and I'm going to put my face in it and smell it right now.
I love this fragrance. I believe that plants can heal us. They have a lot to teach us about how to survive and how to be well and how to grow. Now, I have a, a biblical aside to share. Maybe this is something you've never thought of before. I'll bring it back to Easter in a moment. But first, remember, in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, John sees a vision of the tree of life. Okay, and it says in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, that the leaves of this tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Last chapter of the Bible, John sees the tree of life and says that the leaves of this tree are for the healing of the nations. As a gardener, as a lover of all green living things, I just love that the last word on healing in the Bible, literally, the last word in scripture about how we are made well, the last word about our hope for the good things to come, in the end, we are healed through a tree. And if you'll allow me to say this, if you'll, and if you'll dare to dream it with me, in the end, we are not healed by crucifixion or by violence or by a sacrifice. We are healed by a tree. And we're not healed by the tree getting chopped down or turned into an instrument of torture. We're healed through its leafiness, its growth. We are healed through a mystery of life that lives inside this tree and then returns and unfolds and spreads itself wide. Look out your window at the trees. Go outside. Witness the miracle of death being confronted by plants, by the earth, by a spirit in the air and in the ground that calls things that were buried to rise. This Easter, I ask you, do you believe in the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations? Why am I talking about a tree and about the refreshing smell of lavender? Okay, I'm bringing these things up because of a detail in the resurrection story, the Easter story from the gospel according to Luke. I just want to read just the first verse from the Luke's so-called Easter story. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. Here's the sentence. Quote, very early, in the, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, the women went to the tomb, bringing the fragrant spices they had prepared. The fragrant spices. Where did these spices come from? Well, I'm literally looking at the lavender that I cut this morning. They came from plants, herbs, leaves, bark, roots, plant parts that are full of healing and hope and blessing and beauty, the things that save us. Have you ever anointed yourself with lavender essential oil? before you participated in anti-racist action? Have you ever used aromatherapy to help heal from the stench of white supremacy? Have you ever talked to a plant to learn something about justice? I want us to remember the fragrant spices the women carried with them on the day Jesus rose from the dead. You and I should know that we are carrying something that smells good, something that can heal us, something that will bless others. 
we are carrying these things in our anti-racist work as we confront death, as we proclaim resurrection, as we tell the story of how we are all healed together. That's the Easter message. Resurrection is God confronting death. Anti-racism is our work to confront the state-sanctioned, extra-legal, exploitative systems that make certain groups vulnerable to premature death. In the face of so much death and so many who are being killed, may this be a sweet-smelling season of anti-racist resurrection. Amen. Anne back with you again. As I mentioned in the opening, we've just moved across the country from Denver here to Buffalo. It's a huge transition to move away from a community we have loved deeply and long to a community that has been warm and kind and welcoming and which is also brand new to us. Away from the place we have lived the longest to a part of the continent I never imagined I would live in away from the dry, unrelentingly sunny high desert of the Rocky Mountain Front Range to the shores of one of the Great Lakes, Lake Erie, with water everywhere and a softness to the light. Away from people and work we love to people and work we already love. It's a huge transition that also includes selling our Denver house, setting up a temporary home, and then looking for a new one and also so much packing. And we've said to each other, my beloved and I, we are having all the feelings, every single one of them, from grief to joy and everything in between, hearts stretched and aching and anticipating. I'm grateful for the work I've done in therapy and with herbs and somatics and spiritual direction that I can actually feel all these emotions feel them in my body, welcome them even when they don't feel good, and not be afraid of them. It's normal to feel grief. It's normal to be sad. It's normal to have some trepidation, some relief, some excitement, for tears to come, and sometimes I couldn't even tell you their names. They just are. I think that's why I'm struck this time around with all the emotion in our two gospel choices for Easter Sunday. Mary Magdalene in John, and Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women in Luke. They have stayed to the end and witnessed the brutal state execution of their beloved friend, probably risking their own lives by allowing the Roman law enforcement to see their connection to Jesus. I wonder about the trauma they would have been carrying along with their grief and their herbs as they rose at dawn, alone or together, depending on the storyteller, to go tend to Jesus' bloodied and broken body. 
There are so many emotions. Mary Magdalene's weeping in John's story, which I talked about in last year's podcast for Easter. Her grieving, weeping, and also whatever name the emotions are for when she heard her name and recognized her beloved, and then was sent with the good news. And in Luke's story, the women who are perplexed, frightened, but bow down to the unknown in what, is it awe? And what would they have felt in their remembering? Would have it felt like fresh water trickling up in desolate soil? And when their story is not believed, what would they have felt then? I would be angry and hurt. These stories are so familiar, I wonder sometimes if we read straight through them, flattening the complexities of emotion in order to get to the trumpeting triumph. Except you notice, triumph isn't here. Triumph isn't here. There is a lot of grief, trauma, confusion, disbelief, perplexity, anger, and the quiet whisperings of possibility. But not triumph. The story is unfinished, left in a complicated, uncertain morass of emotion. Nicola got me thinking about this with her podcast for Palm Sunday and then John for Good Friday. The importance of allowing ourselves as white people to feel. And I think there is something key for us here in these Easter stories of complexities of emotion that are not actually triumphant. The Easter stories are threaded through with the emotions of Good Friday and Holy Saturday. The resurrection stories are colored deeply by crucifixion. What this tells me is that the work of holding a resurrection vision beyond the clear reality and brutality of crucifixion requires us to hold all the feelings we can about what we witness in the face of the violence of white supremacy. The future we want to build together, the possibility that a different a more just and gentle world as possible, has its roots here in the anguish and grief of watching our loved ones die and refusing to believe this is how the world has to be. To be open to feeling all of it, even the nameless, wordless tears, and be willing to be sent with good news anyway. And I give the men in these stories a hard time, you know, for not staying, for disbelieving the women, for staying locked up in their upper room. But maybe they were letting themselves feel too. The part of me that sometimes wants to crawl under the covers and not come out sometimes, the part of me that understands trauma and how sometimes you need to get out of the street and tend to your broken heart, That part of me has compassion for this community and the violence they endured, the trauma of betrayal and execution, and wondering if they would be next. For some reason, this year I don't want to discount their choices in the face of state violence. Hiding out if you don't know whether or not Pilate's police are coming for you while you and your people figure out a plan for what's next? That seems like a smart choice. The empire wants us to stay numb, 
to not feel what we feel or believe what we witness. That's what happens when we tell a trumpeting, triumphant Easter story that erases out the emotion, that erases out the crucifixion, that finishes the story before it is done, as if it is done. You know what I mean? How we can show up for an Easter morning service that crows victory while seeming to forget that black churches are burning and migrant children are in cages and pipelines are breaking open indigenous sacred sites and on and on. What I'm saying is, let's feel all our feelings, all the complexities of them, and not flatten and straighten out this story to turn it into something it's not. It's not trumpeted triumph. It's tending to the dead. It's unfinished and uncertain. It's holding one another in grief and pain and trauma and confusion and whispering possibility. Whispering possibility back into our bones, back into our stretched out aching hearts. Possibility. 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 Surely another world is possible. Surely the empire doesn't have the power over death. Surely Jesus lives on in our aching, battered hearts. Amen. Last week, I was in my final interview to be approved for ordination in the United Church of Christ. For about an hour and a half during the meeting, members of my local committee on ministry asked me a bunch of questions. They started with a question about baptism and what I would do if someone came to me asking to be rebaptized. They followed up with questions about salvation, Jesus, the Eucharist, and question after question came seeing if I had done my work, whether I had done my theological homework in preparation to receive the institutional stamp of approval for ordained ministry in the church. About halfway through the meeting, one of the committee members turned to me and said, I wonder if you can tell me a story about resurrection. I paused for a few moments, grateful for the chance to tell a story and not just talk about doctrine. And it didn't take long to remember one of the most powerful stories of resurrection that I've experienced. At first, I was afraid that telling this story to the committee might seem inaccessible or dramatic. I've had conversations with friends before about how we need to be able to talk about crucifixion and resurrection in everyday moments and experiences, not just intense moments in history when it feels like the world is watching but I also wanted to tell the truth. I wanted to tell the truth about how when I first really got what the resurrection and the cross means was in Ferguson, Missouri in October, 2014. It was Ferguson, October, and you may remember that this was a mobilization before the news came in November that Darren Wilson would not be indicted for killing Michael Brown. 
but it was after the first couple of months of protests when police had so ruthlessly attacked community members and protesters in August and early fall. Things had continued to be at a simmer in Ferguson, and national news had moved off of the city. But organizers and activists in the community refused to let the country turn away. They put out a call to action for people from across the U.S. and even the world to come to Ferguson for a weekend in late October to add their voices to the chorus demanding justice for Michael Brown. I was there to help with communications for the faith-based network I worked for at the time, which was helping organize religious leaders to participate in a nonviolent direct action in front of the Ferguson police station. On Sunday night, we were gathered, working through the design and logic of the action the next day. But a little before midnight, we got word that protesters were starting to gather for a silent march to St. Louis, Louis University's campus. It became known as Occupy SLU. Most of my colleagues I was marching with had been in Ferguson in August and had come back incredibly traumatized. Tear gassed and hit by rubber bullets, kettled by the police, that's when the police force you into a situation in which they then have to, quote, arrest people. My friends and colleagues were not naive. So as we decided who amongst ourselves was going to go to the midnight march, we followed practice and wrote arrest information on our arms and put bandanas around our necks to protect ourselves from tear gas. I remember saying yes because I recognized that saying yes to putting my body on the line is what it meant to say yes to following Christ, to carrying the cross with Christ. Maybe because there was so much press, or maybe because there were so many white people who showed up that weekend, the police were not acting out as much during Ferguson October. When we marched to SLU that night, the police were standing back, but still making their presence and power very known. Like a Roman legion, they were lined up across the bridge that we marched on, in riot gear, tapping batons, as we silently walked by through thickening fog that was spreading throughout the city. The next day was the clergy action at the police station. There were about a hundred people, mostly religious leaders and seminarians. I remember seeing amongst the crowd local protesters from Ferguson who had been there for months, weary. For many of us from out of town, this was participating in a historic high-profile action that made it into the New York Times. For them, it was just Monday. Another day, another action in front of the police station. Another day, another excruciating exercise of pushing and waiting for justice for their friend's death. Police were lined up outside the station, and the idea was for clergy to approach them, to confess their own complicity in white supremacy, and then pray for the police officers to confess theirs and fall back. When they would say no, the clergy would try to break the line, triggering their own arrest. It was raining. It was raining so hard that I ended up leaving my jacket in Ferguson that day because it was too wet to bring home with me in the plane. It was raining so hard that my camera lens was full of raindrops and the chalk we had brought to trace the lines of people's body and the concrete to remember the body of Michael Brown was running in thin drizzles down the pavement. But people didn't leave, and for four hours straight, 
They linked arms with each other, singing and chanting, soaked through and stamping in the puddles. I paused here in the story and told the Committee on Ministry that I've always associated God's grace with water. And so when Reverend Alvin Herring, who was leading chants, started shouting between calls of no justice, no peace, when he started saying, this rain is grace, this rain is mercy, that felt true to me. I felt us rising up in the rain. When you look at the video footage I took that day, you can hear me weeping. In the words of Reverend Osavoikuseku, who was one of the leaders of the march and who trained the clergy in nonviolence, I believe that when we rise up, we've already won. And in the words of the chant made famous by the Dream Defenders, I believe that we will win. You see, in medieval Christian thought, there's this concept called Christus Victor, or Christ the Victor. The idea is that in his resurrection, Jesus has already won the battle over sin and death. It is only our job to accept the victory. There is a way of interpreting Christus Victor theory that is nihilistic and withdraws us from the world. Or in a way that glorifies Christ's victory over his vulnerability, or even in a way that is dangerously Christian supremacist. But when I think of Reverend Seku saying, when we rise up, we've already won, it makes sense to me. Because to not let powers and principalities of white supremacy and the state violence that protects it rule the day is what it means to be raised up in Christ. It's what it means to let God work on us so that we can be Easter people, standing aghast like Mary Magdalene and Peter and the beloved disciple at the tomb in John, telling and living out the news of what we've seen, the news of what we know that God can do. The news of what we know God will do, free the captives, raise up the broken and the criminalized and the hurting, raise up crushed people in spite of every way the state tries to knock them down. When we rise up against the violence of racism and xenophobia and patriarchy and economic scarcity and environmental destruction, in spite of everything that would hold us back, in spite of everything that makes us afraid, we experience God's grace in the process. God's grace, like the rain that day, soaking us to the bone, immersing us. And yet, resurrection is full of contradictions. I'll never forget how one of the people I met outside the police station was Josh Williams, a young protester from Ferguson who, just less than a month later, was arrested after a protest when Darren Wilson was not indicted. He's still in jail today. Josh Williams is behind bars in a maximum security prison in Missouri, and yet here I am, recording this from the safety of my living room. Resurrection is full of contradictions. As much as I'd like to explain them away and to give you some wisdom about why I'm free and why Josh is not, that I would be lying to you about. What is known in Christian tradition as Christ's final battle over sin and death does not mean our work is done. It does not mean that salvation and liberation is finished. It does not mean that we get to glorify our experiences of a resurrection without remembering who is still crucified. Amen.
our work is not done. Salvation and liberation are not finished. This is Reverend Dan back with you for your call to action in response to these reflections for Easter. What spices might we bring to do our part to heal the world? First, I invite you to let your hearts and bodies feel whatever response these reflections have provoked in you. Resurrection is full of contradictions, of emotions, and the sharp smell of herbs meant to heal battered bodies. Sit with and stay with whatever has come up for you in your spirit, in your body, in your heart. What wisdom is there for you? Second, find someone to talk to about what you experienced in this podcast. Listen together again and reflect on how anti-racism is like resurrection, what kinds of emotions there might be in the gospel resurrection stories, or what it means to rise up in the rain. And then, together, take one or more of the next actions. Together, collectively, we are stronger together and do not have to do this work alone. Third, we want to offer you opportunities to be the leaves of the tree, anti-racist healing actions we can take as those complicit in the violence and harm of white supremacy. Here are five actions we suggest to address the harms of white supremacy and white nationalism. All the links to these will be in the transcript, as well as on Twitter and our Surge Faith Facebook group. First, contribute to the work of Surge and Jews for Racial and Economic Justice in the fight against anti-Semitism, one of the key forces upholding white supremacy. More resources about anti-Semitism can be found in the transcript and on the Surge website. Second, contribute to the repair and healing of the Highlander Center after the white nationalist attack that burned down their office building. Highlander is historically and continues to be a primary source of movement organizing, leadership building, and healing work. Third, contribute to the repair and healing of the three historically black churches in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana, that were burned by a white supremacist a few weeks ago. Fourth, check out the report from Mijente about tech companies like Amazon and their ties to the surveillance, detention, and deportation of immigrants and asylum seekers. You can take action right away against Amazon, but the report also names lots of other companies that you could take action against, such as the banks that are funding all of this. And fifth and finally, join the Fellowship of Reconciliation's Reparations Campaign. Learn more at the website, and we've also included registration links for some upcoming informational webinars. Whatever action you choose, let's do the work together to build a world without crucifixion, a resurrection world. Please let us know how it goes, and also your reactions to this podcast. To celebrate our 100th episode, which was for Palm Sunday, April 14th, we've created a listener survey where you can share your thoughts and stories. Go to the uh, website bit.ly slash twir100survey. That's a bit.ly link, bit.ly slash twir100survey. And take a few minutes to let us know what you think. 
You can also always communicate with us by posting on our Facebook or SoundCloud pages. We value your input and ideas, and we especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. We also want you to know that we're not the only ones podcasting about dismantling white supremacy and the intersections of our activism, faith, and community building. We encourage you to check out Podcasts for a Just World, especially their Lenten series, Sacred Conversations to End Racism. The podcast is produced by our friend Tracy Howe Whispelway, and the Lenten series is co-hosted by Reverend Dr. Velda Love, Minister for Racial Justice for the United Church of Christ. Podcast for a Just World is available on iTunes and SoundCloud slash For a Just World. Thanks as always for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. Let us know how your action goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. And stay tuned for our next episode when Margaret Ernst will be bringing us a resistance word for April 28th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, and again, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor, Maxwell Pearl. Max, we're so grateful to you always and ever. And again, thanks for doing double duty this week. Easter blessings to all of you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. <laughs>